It is a great honor and pleasure for me to be here in this uh, Blue Lotus Temple and also to meet uh, Bhante Sujata, one of my mentors and then other venerable monks. You know, it's quite difficult for me to uh, reject the invitation Bhante Sujata usually <laughs> make. <laughs> I really have to accommodate <laughs> Uh, his invitation, so that is why we uh, took the trouble to you know, drive all the way from <laughs> Pittsburgh yesterday together with Bhante Purna, the other resident monk uh, in, Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh Buddhist Center. So he also gave me a difficult topic, you know, this is not a topic that I chose, it's a topic that he commissioned me to do. <laughs> and so I had no choice, you know, I had to, I had to prepare, and, you know. <laughs> to give the talk. Uh, during the time of the Buddha, there was a one monk who was about to leave his monkhood. He was, you know, considered a failure. And uh, so the other senior monks uh, thought that he is not very good in learning the Buddhist teachings and particularly he was very bad with memory. Uh, so he was just about to leave the monkhood. But when the Buddha learned about this monk and Buddha asked him to come and um, Buddha gave him a different kind of assignment. Buddha gave him a small piece of white cloth and asked him to rub the cloth again and again, again and again. By, and while very um, carefully observing what is going to happen. <laughs> So this monk, who was considered a failure, so about to you know, leave the monkhood, got this piece of white cloth, and he kept rubbing it, carefully observing what's, what is really happening. So kept rubbing the white cloths, and after you, you know, rub white cloths for 30 minutes, what's going to happen? Yeah, you can, you can try it. <laughs> and this is a kind of experiment you know, Buddha was doing. So he kept rubbing it, for a while, and after a while he realized that actually this piece of white cloth, which was quite pure in the beginning, and slowly getting dirty and dirty and dirty because of the, you know, the sweat of the hand. So when he was really observing this whole process of the white cloth and rubbing, and that kind of, because of his keen awareness of the whole process, observation, and he, he realized, you know, a deeper truth in our life. You know, how this, how everything is in a constant uh, flux of change. And this piece of cloth was one thing in the beginning, but now is quite different. And it's not only the, the cloth is different, but his, his body is also different now. And this demarcation of our body and myself and the rest of the world. You know, we have this strict, you know, demarcation that my me is one unit, the whole world is another, another. But when you see this whole thing happening with the white cloth, you know, he realized that actually the, the, the boundaries that we make of our self and the rest of the world is not that, not that, uh, uh, isolated. And it's not that, you know, demarcated. You know, things can flow. And white cloth got what is what I considered myself, the part of my body, and the body has changed now, and and also the white cloth has changed now. 
So uh, that helped him to realize the deep truth of our life and, and, and reality, and he became enlightened monks. So I felt that this is a very scientific experiment. <laughs> like, you know, simply, you know, touching the white cloth with keen observation, and that is the main principle in science, right? So you observe the natural phenomena, and, and by observing it, you, um, develop, you know, um, generalization. And then you experiment it again and again whether it is repeatable. Uh, so I think that this is, uh, that shows us like, you know, from the beginning of Buddhism, you have this method of, uh, experiment and method of observing, method of, you know, making generalization by specific observation and then repeating it. So for me, you know, what Buddha did for this monk, was a kind of scientific experiment. <laughs> so what I'm going to talk today is actually, you know, those uh, points of uh, uh, convergence, you know, where the, the Buddhism meets the science. And definitely, you know, uh, we can see that there are there can be different goals for science and Buddhism, but there are uh, points that Buddhism and science meet. So I'm going to share with you at least four points, you know, four um, um, points that we can understand how Buddhism and science meet together and then maybe sometimes complement each other. So this is not to say that Buddhism and the science, but there are points of uh, convergence. So the first point I would like to share with you, the uh, again, the method of acquiring knowledge, you know, what the, the methods of acquiring knowledge in Buddhism and science. You know, as, as we just discussed in the science, we have this method of observing a natural phenomena and then you know, understanding some pattern and then putting it to an experiment and test and see whether it is repeatable and then come up with a predicting, predictable, you know, uh, theories, you know, how anything can behave. Um, so we, we have this observation coming to a, a kind of generalization and repeating it. So, and then not really accepting anything based on, you know, some kind of authority. So when it comes to Buddhism, the way the Buddhism, uh, uh, like the, the method of acquiring knowledge, has that element of uh, uh, unbiased observation. And I think most of you are familiar with the, the special sutra we call Kalama Sutta, like the Kalama Sutra, where Buddha encourage everyone uh, not to accept anything based on uh, the authority of the sources, whether it is coming from a tradition, coming from a reputed teacher, uh, coming from uh, you know revered books, and and even Buddha has asked not to accept anything out of reverence to the teacher. But that doesn't mean that Buddha has asked us to deny that tradition or deny you know any uh, authority or source, but simply do not use. The, the tradition as a criteria for truth. So the whatever coming from tradition can be both true and false. So the whatever coming from books or holy books is, can be both true and false. So we should not reject them or at the same time we should not accept them merely because they are found in those books or in traditions. So we have to suspend the judgment and simply consider those holy books, traditions uh, as sources of knowledge or reverential teachers 
as sources of knowledge, but not necessarily as criteria to be truthful. And so what would they have said that, and you can have this information and then, and you start exploring and start uh, testing them with your own life experiences. And whenever you realize that these things are actually applicable in my life and these things uh, make sense in my own experience, then only you accept them. Whenever you personally experience it and it makes sense to you and then you can accept it. And that is the main advice you find in the Kalama Sutta. So in, in terms of you know, gaining knowledge, acquiring knowledge, we have this, uh, the, uh, this approach, critical approach, this uh, unbiased approach, which is quite common with the science. And in fact, we have uh, one Sanskrit uh, stanza uh, coming from Ghanaviha Sutta. I will say to you, the Buddha has said, according to that, Sanskrit source, just as a seasoned goldsmith would test the purity of his gold through a meticulous process of examination, one should examine my words and accept them, but not merely out of reverence to me. <laughs> and Buddha said, even for my words, you know, don't accept out of reverence to me. You can, of course, we can have a reverence of the Buddha, but in order to accept what he has said, Buddha has advised us to like experiment it, just like a goldsmith will experiment the purity of the gold. So this is quite, you know, similar to the, what you know what we we can find in the scientific uh, uh, method. Um, and of course, when it comes to teachings of the Buddha, any teachings of the Buddha will not really bring us any benefits unless we experientially, you know, uh, verify for ourselves. You know, of course, it's very, a very rare chance, you know, any individual person will be able to, you know, um, um, falsify the teachings of the Buddha. But no teachings will be meaningful and useful unless we personally experience and verify it. So there are some similarities in that uh, sense too. So that's one, that is one uh, uh, point of convergence. The second one is actually, uh, is this whole idea of uh, dependent origination. Um, the One of the basic principles of Buddhism, the, when it explains reality, is its nature of its interdependence. So we call it dependent origination or interdependence, and that is the underlying principle of all teachings of the Buddha, and also that is the underlying principles of the existence or reality in according to Buddha's teaching. This uh, interdependence or dependent origination. If anything to exist in the world, it has to depend on something else, uh, though something else are also dependent on something else. And so we have this whole idea of interdependence and nothing exists in the world uh, independently. Uh, and anything coming to be in the world also based on causes and conditions. Nothing comes into be without causes and conditions. And those causes and conditions are also in turn dependent on some other causes and conditions. So we have this whole web of causes and conditions and make it possible for things to arise, things to exist. 
So this, this idea is that whole things in, in a web and connecting to each other. And that is how also we got this idea of emptiness. The emptiness doesn't simply mean that it's like nothing or void. The emptiness means empty of independent existence. Empty of independent existence. So everything's existing depending on many other things. So existence, existence means interdependence. So that's the basic uh, principle. So this is quite similar to what, you know, science is beginning to realize now. Of course, you know, the like classical um, science or classical physics would like to see a uh, more discrete existence of, you know, different elements. But we know that, you know, with, you know, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, you know, with the uh, discovery of a uh, uh, theory of relativity, and we are beginning to realize that, you know, things are not as discrete as they appear to be. And, you know, and then even like, of course, in the classical physics, the space and time was considered like two different elements. But with the theory of relativity, we are beginning to realize that actually time can be a part of the space or like related to the space. It can be fourth dimension of the space, right? Uh, and so we begin to see that like even things like uh, forces and space and times, we may not have independent existence as we usually think. They are, they are so interrelated. They exist, but in, uh, dependently on each other. And moreover, when we come to the... Um, so even like time and space and mass, energy, they are not really absolutes. They, they independently exist. And when it comes to, of course, quantum level, like quantum physics, you know, things are getting more, I mean, more interdependent and, you know, and then, and of course it confused so many, you know, theories of the you know, classical physics. Um, so what we are realizing that in, in, in the classical physics, an, an object can exist and at one place at a given time, I mean, uh, only, I mean, an object can exist uh, at a given time in one place, you know, one object cannot exist in two times, like this, this ball, the, the bell can exist in this place at a given time, you know, it can exist in a different place when if I move, but in two different times. So in the same time, one object cannot exist in two different places. But at the level of quantum level, like the more, more deeper, more uh, smallest level, the scientists are discovering that sometimes an object can appear in you know, two different places at the same time. Or at least as a chance, at least there's a possibility that one element, one object can exist in two time, I mean, uh, two places at the same time. Or, like, you know, even like one object can exist as an, as a, uh, uh, as a, uh, and like, as a wave at one time. And also, Sometimes the same thing can also uh, exist as a particle. You know, that is not, I mean, in, the, in, in classical physics, either something had to be particle or and, uh, that element has to be wave. But now scientists are realizing that actually even light is supposed to you know, be a particles, but now at the quantum level, they are realizing that actual light can also exist as a wave. So at one time it can be wave, another time it can be particle. 
right? So the, again, we realizing that these things are not solid and absolute, as discrete as you know the uh, the classical science used to understand. So they are going to be more complex at the at the same time, like in like existing, but more like not as solid things, but more like more like a fluid, more like uh, inter interdependently of each other. So, of course, at the quantum level, we are also realizing the influence of the observer. Like, you know, like if the very observation of the particles can change into a wave. Or the observation of the wave can turn into a particle. So that's the role of the observer also. So it's difficult to establish a reality of objective reality because the, the observation of the reality can change the reality also. So, so we can again come into that in, interdependence kind of idea. So that is one important convergence we are seeing in science and, and Buddhism. Okay, the other point I would like to share with you is the cosmology, <laughs> the, the world. But you know, there's a precaution we have to make because Buddhism is not very much interested in the macrocosm, <laughs> like the space out there. Buddhism is more interested in microcosm. Uh, but of course, there are teachings in the Buddha, in the, in the sutras, we can find where Buddha talks about macrocosm, like, you know, large universe, uh, or maybe we, in Buddhism, what we call the space world. The more interest of Buddhism is more like turning the whole telescope inward. <laughs> like, you know, like not really telescope outward, but mostly like inward and seeing this world right here. But we can also find some reference to the outer world. And in fact, actually, uh, we, we find these teachings of the Buddha, um, um, with thanks to Venerable Ananda. I mean, you have heard about Venerable Ananda, right? Venerable Ananda, who is a personal attendant of the Buddha, actually, he, 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 he played so many roles, not only as an attendant, but also as a private secretary of the Buddha, and organizing his meetings, you know, travels, and also as a very important person, uh, of like, like a reporter, like who memorized so many teachings of the Buddha. And Venerable Ananda was not enlightened until the, you know, the, the passing away of the Buddha, so he's like represent most of us, actually. So he has all kind of crazy questions for the Buddha. And he was, you know, like bugging the Buddha one time, you know, to explain you know, what Buddha would think about this space world. And Buddha did not purposely give this teaching, but he was like pushing the Buddha, you know, can you tell me, you know, what is there and how much influence we can make? So because of his um, constant in asking, and one time actually Buddha gave, uh, not one time, there are a few, few sutras we can find Buddha was explaining the space world. And what is really interesting is that, um, of course, until the, uh, for, for centuries, you know, human beings used to look at the world as a geocentric, you know, conception of the universe. You know, people thought that this earth is the center of the world, like a geocentric, and everything else rotate around the you know, earth. That was the idea for centuries. For, you know, for human beings until maybe, you know, like, until, you know, until the Copernicus, right? <laughs> until the Galileo and Copernicus, like 16th and 17th century. The idea of the world is like, Earth is the center, everything around, like, you know, working, like, around us. And we are the center of the world. 
right? And so the more we learn about the universe, we are becoming, I mean, we are, this, we are moving away from the center to the periphery, right? So now we are like a periphery, but in the beginning, like we feel like we are the center of the world. So what is, what we really realize, what we, what is really surprising in the teachings of the Buddha, when, when, when Buddha started talks about the world, and he, he displaces the earth at the center. And I, I can read you, this is from the, um, Sutra called Loka Dhatu Vinyapana Sutta, like um, this is one sutta we find the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And I can give a specific reference if you like later. And it starts like this. So when 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 the Balananda asks to explain the space world, instead of starting with the earth, he starts with as far as the suns and moons revolve, shining and shedding their light in the space. So far extend the one world system. So it's a starting point of explaining the world, space world, focus on the suns, not only, not even a sun, the sun, but he focus on the suns. So I find that this is the first reference, if I'm not wrong, at least in the Asian context, where the, the earth is displaced as the center of the universe. But focusing on the sun, or sons to explain the world. So, and then Buddha talks about three tires of the world systems. Okay, so he said there are three tires. This is the first tire. He says that um, the thousand sons, the system of thousand sons, can be considered as one world system. So, we, we, uh, the, the first tire he called thousandfold. Minor world system or Sahasi Lokadatu. The thousandfold minor world system. That is if, so it's like talking about uh, a, a world system which has 1000 suns. I mean, what is similar to this? Is, is galaxy has one sun or more suns? More suns. So it can be close, like his first tire, his first, uh, world system can be close to a galaxy, the modern day science. And then say that that is not isolated, that world system with thousand suns is one system, but he said that there could be the, the, the second tire is that thousands of those world systems. So he called it uh, like twice a thousand milding world system. Like thousands of those world systems can be another uh, set. And, uh, and so that you, here we get like thousands, you know, uh, times thousands is one million, right? So it, then he talks about the world system that has one million suns. So those, the, 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 those sis, the galaxies can be part of another larger system, which he called twice a thousand world system. So we are talking about one million suns. So it could be like, Cluster of, you know, like, now we are talking about the, the cluster, cluster of universes, the cluster of galaxies, right? The galaxy exists in clusters. So, similar to that. So, thousands of galaxies. And then he said that even that world system can be part of another larger system, the third level. <laughs> and he said that actually, uh, 
thousands of those clusters can be another system. He call it thrice a world great world system. So you can we get one billion suns in that system, thousand times you know million. So similar to like maybe now we used to go super cluster or maybe mega galaxy. So we have to think about this is given in sixth century BCE. Like people were still think about the earth as the, you know, center of the universe, you know, he's like displaces the earth and then move to the suns and he's talking about, you know, one billion suns. Of course they stopped there. He didn't go further than that. Because Buddha said that, you know, learning about these things are not directly related to our liberation. With the, I mean, your suffering will not end just because you learn about thousand, one billion suns. So he didn't go beyond that, you know, he said, Anand, that is enough for you to know. Um, so, so it shows that, you know, so what we are uh, discovering the science, it has some kind of uh, affinity, some kind of connection to what, how the Buddha saw this space world. And also, the very term Buddha used for this system is called Chakwala. You know the meaning of the word Chakka, right? Chakka, like, like the first teaching of the Buddha called Dhamma Chakka, you know, the wheel. And so when you, the, the idea of a wheel, you know, then in one sense it, it shows this spiral idea of the galaxies, you know, like the, um, uh, the Edwin Herbal's, you know, idea of a spiral world system. And also it shows the, like, you know, rotation, like moving, or the idea of the universe is moving. So there are so many affinities in that sense. And of course, and Buddha also talks about different paces of the, of a world system. And in, in another sutra, also in the Anguttara Nikai, numerical discourse called Kappa Sutta, Buddha talks about four paces of a solar system, or even four paces of any planet. And he named these four, four paces, like one, phase number one can be called opening pace, called Vivatamana. And any solar system, any world system, any planet can have one pace called opening pace. And the second pace called opened pace. And the other pace is called closing pace. And the fourth uh, pace is called closed pace. So the organic life is possible only in the opening and opened pace. So any world system can go through these paces. So even for example, earth can have a closed pace an opening paced, an opened pace, and a closing place, and going back to closed place. So these, those four paces. So right now, Earth is in opened pace, so we have organic life. But maybe you can start to question, you know, because, uh, with the you know, global warming, whether we have started the closing pace. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, you know, it's up to us you know, whether to start the next pace, <laughs> right? And so, so talking about these different paces, also quite, you know, um, similar to what scientists are realizing about the world. So this is uh, quite similar to what we call psych psychical, psychical cosmology. Even like uh, the in, like like a Big Bang theory has this linear explanation that you have a Big Bang and it's, you know it start expand 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 ultimately you know collapse into black holes. But uh, the idea of uh, cyclical cosmology, it's like it's not one system can be you know psych psychical you know Big Bangs and then um, 
black hole collisions and again big bang. So the Buddhist idea is more like a psychical. So that's about cosmology. <laughs> but I think I'm more interested in talking about the, the other convergence, which is, we can call it psychology, like turning the telescope inward. And that is where the Buddhism has much to say about, uh, about us. Um, so, of course, you know, the Buddhism shares with science that Buddhism start to study the mind quite critically. You know, even uh, the mind. So, but of course, the tools or techniques the Buddhism used to study mind is quite different from the science tools. You know, in Buddhism, what we mainly mainly use is called introspection, mindfulness, um, critical evaluation of the mental states, in insight, meditation techniques. Um, so those are the, the wise reflections. Those are the techniques the Buddhism is using. Of course, in science, you usually use uh, observation of others' behavior. And when it comes to study mind, science is more of ob observing the behavior. Uh, and then, and of course, later, the brain uh, mechanism and brain states. So what science is basically using a third-person perspective. Like you, you can only observe someone else's mind, not your mind. <laughs> In, in science, you all, uh, science, scientific method always observing the minds of others through behavior or through brain states. But I think the Buddhist technique is a little different. We'll come to that later. It's by more like a first person um, uh, tech method, like observing the mind of yours and then you make generalization of others. So there are two different approaches, but mainly the critical approach is, is the same. But I think one thing, one common thing between Buddhism and science when it comes to mind is that both Buddhism and science does not uh, uh, regard uh, a permanent entity as mind. Like uh, there's no, even in science and also in Buddhism, we don't re recognize uh, something like uh, unchanging entity that we, which we can recognize as mind. Um, but Buddhism usually explains mind more as a flow more as a process rather than an entity, more as a process. So the, the, there is a definitely a mental aspect here, but it's, it's, a, it's a flow, it's a process rather than in one single entity that we can somehow you know, pinpoint. So, and also the deep explanation of the mind, Buddhism explained that although we use the term mind as a noun, in Buddhist explanation of the mind, it's always explained, it's not really one thing. It's a function of multiple processes, even not one process. I think most of you are familiar with the teachings of the five aggregates, right? You know, can you impress me by like telling the, all the five? <laughs> what is the first aggregate? Yeah, physical form. The second one, feelings, very good. The third one, perception, very good. The third one, the fourth one, hmm? Uh, well, yeah, mental formation, volitional formation, so any kind of you know, formation. The last one? Yeah. Congratulations, monks. You know, they have taught you really well. <laughs> I'm so impressed. So take those five aggregates. This is like explaining the, you know, um, our mind. And if you remove the physical form and the all other four are the four aspects of what you call the mind. It's not really one thing. Sensation or feelings, you know, like, like uh, affective dimension, sensation. And the second one is perception, like cognitive aspect of it and how we form knowledge, you know, the concepts, you know, uh, reasoning. And the third one is 
volitional formation or mental formations. That's more like habits, like more like a, like a deliberate, deliberative actions, cognitive aspect of it, and then as a result, forming habits. And the last one is consciousness, like basic awareness of, you know, sensory experiences. So we can see that at least four aspects, you know, a combination of this, the four processes is what you call the mind. Now, let me read you the definition of mind given by American Associ Association of American Association of Psychology. Oh, that's Association of APA. How you say that? Um, Association of Psychology of America. Oh, American Association of Psychology. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read their definition of mind. All intellectual and psychological phenomena of an organism encompassing motivational, affective, behavioral, perceptual, cognitive systems. So when you say motivational, that is uh, the mental volitional formation like, you know, cognitive, deliberative aspect. Affective, that means feelings, sensations. And perceptual, that means perceptions, cognitive, uh, and then perceptual and cognitive systems. So, so even is that is the definition. So show, it shows that you know mind is not considered as one single single simple element. It's, it's a combination of multiple functions. So that is how even Buddhism recognizes the mind also. And the other one is like the minds, uh, uh, according to the Buddha, our experience of the world is largely determined by our mind. Um, like what we how what we see as the world is largely kind of constructed, so to speak, by the mind. Um, and that is why we find these terms like mind is the forerunner of all experiences. Remember, that is the first line in the Dhammapada, right? Mind is the forerunner of all experiences. Mind made are they. Um, and then, so, Buddha is also describing that the world we experience is a co-creation of our mind and then, and the whatever the stuff, <laughs> the other, <laughs> right? It's not no. We don't really see it in objective world, so to speak. You know, we are part of uh, creating the very reality that we are seeing. And of course, then of course we come to the the other part, other function of the mind. But they also recognize that our mind has a capacity even to like create a virtual reality. And most of the time, if we only need a little bit of pieces of information. We create a whole world, right? We call it in virtual reality. We most of the time we live in virtual reality rather than the actual reality. You know, we have a special term for that called papancha, like a poly mental proliferation and then creating a virtual reality that does not exist. Right? When you have an interview, when you are going for an interview, you can along the way to interview you can create a whole reality that you failed the interview, you mean lost the job and everything. Right? Even without going to the interview, so we have that capacity too. But even in our normal or in rudimentary kind of experiences, our mind plays an important role. But you know what? Now neuroscience, what the neuroscience is recognizing that actually, and they also trying to see that even our post sensory experience is, is largely a a creation of our brain you know, in according neuroscience, uh, and particularly you know, in our view of the world, when we see something, there are blind spots, right? Uh, there are blind spots, but actually our brain fills them. And when you see any place, actually, what is what really 
the, the, whenever you look at me or this area, whatever, our eyes can only catch a small um, hole, a small spot as clearly. I can't see you all at once. I can see you maybe one or two person at a time. You know, actually our perceptual, actual sensory data that is going through our eyes to our brain is actually one hole, a small hole, and rest of the things are blurred. So I should be seeing the world like, you know, one small, like having a problem with the eyes, you know, when we have, you know, seeing a small spot right in the middle is clear and the rest of things as blurred. But that is, that is actually the sensory data coming through our eyes to our brain. But that is not how you see me or see this hole. And you fill the rest based on your previous visions, previous memories. So all the time when you see the world actually, we are actually getting the very little data, but the rest we construct. The brain constructs for us. Brain fills for us, for us. So that is how we see the world. So the, so instead, I mean, what we really see, there is actually constructed in the brain, according to neuroscience, which is exactly the same thing the Buddha has said. So, so in a way, you know, according to neuroscience, our brain simulates the world. <laughs> and, and that is exactly what, you know, we find in the teaching of the Buddha too. Okay. Um, lastly, a part of the psychology, actually, um, one thing I would like to share with you is that, uh, the human predicament, you know, Buddha has talked about, you know, how, you know, as human beings, our common aspect of our experience is called dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness. Uh, and so, and this is a very common truth for everyone, and Buddha said that that is, this, this, this feeling of unsatisfying is a, is a result of a tendency in us. And it's not something wrong with the world, but actually how we perceive the world. And particularly he talks about uh, the, the, the craving, the inner craving, or Buddha called it tanha, or thirst. This incessant craving for pleasure again and again, and not satisfying in any pleasure, but looking for a repeated experience of pleasure. Uh, and that is the that is the cause that creates the unsatisfactoriness. And then Buddha said the reason that we have this incessant craving is based on our basic misunderstanding of the world we call ignorance. So there's a connection between ignorance and craving. Right? Craving produces suffering, but the craving is there because we have basic misunderstanding of the world as permanent fixed thing. So based on the avidya or ignorance and craving, we experience suffering. This is the basic teachings of the Buddha in the first noble truth and the second noble truth. And, and of course, third and the fourth are the solution for that, right? And what we are seeing here actually now, the evolutionary psychology, also realizing that, uh, and, and what, you know, uh, I can introduce you one important scientist, evolutionary psychologist called Robert Wright. And Robert Wright, uh, wrote a book called Moral Animal about 10 years ago, and he said that I have a bad news to tell you. Because through the process of evolution, our brain is wired to keep us unsatisfied. Because that is good for the evolution. If you simply satisfy one pleasure, you will not strive to do it again and again, you know, try to have other pleasures. That is, that is not good for the Evolution, because you will not be productive in the literal sense of the word. 
And if you be satisfied with one sexual pleasure or one sensual pleasure, you will stop pursuing other pleasures. So that is not good from the point of evolution. That doesn't help the good genes to go to the next generation. So therefore, he said that the, the whole process of evolution made our brain in a way that it, it doesn't allow us to feel satisfied. It, it wants us to be like, in, be like crazy and going after the one pleasure after the other, one pleasure after the other. That is, that is helping for somehow press our whatever's the fittest genes to the next generation. So the evolution, according to Robert Wright, is not kind to individuals. <laughs> it simply wants, you know, to continue this species and even to make use of all individual beings for that whole purpose. And he said that our brain is wired not only to like keep us unsatisfied, but it's also wired to mislead us or to deceive us, not seeing this reality. Um, so, and then after he, he, and then after, that is 10 years ago, and then maybe somehow we came to know about Buddhism also. <laughs> And he realized that actually what Buddha had talked about the Four Noble Truth is exactly the same thing. We have this incessant yearning of sensual pleasures again and again and again and again, not satisfying with any sensory pleasure. And, and also we have this ignorance that's, that, that feed this craving. And he realized that what, what they have come realized through this evolution, the psychology is the same as what Buddha is telling. But what he was so excited is about actually not, actually Buddha has recognized this human predicament, human problem, but they has also given a solution for this. And so, so he got so excited about it and he, and he said that the, the Buddhism is giving uh, weapons for us to, at like, at least kind of weapons to like fight against these traits that we have got from our evolution. And through mindfulness, we can see the, the urges coming through from, uh, from our natural brain you know, wiring, but we can also change it if you want through using mindfulness. So, uh, like, mindfulness meditation can make us aware of the feelings that natural selection used to shape our thought and action and can, can help us to choose to accept their guidance or not. So it, Kind of, it offers us an alternative way to be. If you, of course, you have to be, you know, tra you have to train that part of the brain. Um, so, therefore, he he got seriously excited. He wrote a book, 2017, called "Why Buddhism Is True." That is the title of the book. But it's, I mean, he was a evolutionary psychologist. He didn't he didn't write written any books before that. But he purposely put that title. Maybe he wanted to sell more books. Yeah. <laughs> Why Buddhism is true in, in the psycholo in the evolutionary psychological perspective. Um, so you can read that book. So those are the points of convergence I would like to share with you today. Um, I think our time is up. <laughs> but there are also divergence too. You know, one important thing and what important place that Buddhism and science can complement each other is actually bringing the, the, because Buddhism is so good in in using techniques to use the first person's perspective to, st to study the mind. Science is good at using the third person's perspective to study the mind. I think the mind, the very nature of the mind is very subjective. So not, so in, without bringing the subjective aspect to it, I think we will not be able to fully comprehend the mind. So in this place, I think Buddhism and science complement each other. Uh, like, 
using two different, you know, uh, techniques. If you also incorporate first-person perspective, I mean, the problem will, science would be like, can we have a really rigorous uh, data, rigorous techniques. Like can we really have can have objective data by simply observing one's own mind? I think Buddhism has enough techniques even to examine our own mind without being biased about it. Uh, so that will be a, a complement, maybe a, you know, Buddhist contribution to the science. So, so let us uh, keep practicing to rewire our brain. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. You know, uh, for your. Um, Patience, and he gave me a really difficult topic, so I had to talk a lot. But I think we can still have a few times for questions, right, Bhante? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think now we realize that time is also not absolute. Yeah, so. <laughs>